0: The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Roner Park, California and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Roner Park area. Uh, so let's all take our Bibles and turn to John chapter 5. And i would ask you to stand with me as we read from John chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 through 8 of John chapter 5. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, A blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first after the troubling of the water stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there. That's important that you, you, you realize the Bible specifies a certain man. I'll come back to that a little later. And a certain man was there, which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. And Jesus saw him lie, and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, and said unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man, when the water is troubled, to put me into the pool. But while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Jesus saith unto him, Rise! Take up thy bed and walk. Let us pray. Father, we come to you this morning with thanksgiving for the grace that we have in our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the mercy that you show us and the kindness that you show us each day. We thank you for your protection over us. And Lord, I just pray that as we have come together today, that we would have a heart ready to receive the word of God, that Father, that you would use the preaching of this word to speak to your people's hearts and minds. Bless our time together now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Is it enough? That's that's a question that needs to be answered by every one of us in this room. Is it enough? Is our faith enough? Is is our belief enough? Is is what we have, will it it be enough? Will Will it work? Will we be made whole? As I stand here this morning, millions of people are sitting in church services all over this world. Many, if not most of these millions, will hear a message that will not and cannot help them answer today's question. Is it enough? Some will put their faith in, their church, in the church itself today. They will trust their membership in a church to make them whole in God's sight. They will, they will put all their confidence and hope in that. They will say, well, my membership in my church is enough. Others will put their faith in works. Their their offering of prayers, their acts of contrition, their baptism, their their visitation, all done in a vain effort to gain forgiveness of sin. And they will say, all these things I do, they, they are sufficient to appease the Lord. They will say, that is enough then there are those who put no faith in God at all. They deny the existence of a holy, righteous, and sovereign God over them. They insist that they are the result of an evolutionary process, and that the notion of God is simply ludicrous. Now, in the passage of scriptures we've just read, Jesus asks this impotent man a very pointed question. He says, Wilt thou be made whole? I say it is a pointed question because Jesus didn't expect this man to be able to answer that question. Rather, he asked the question in order to prove a point. In other words, he's saying, do you really believe this will work? That's what he's telling this man. Do you think this is going to work? Will this make you whole? Jesus wasn't inquisitive as to whether or not this pool truly had miraculous healing powers. He already knew the answer to that question. Have you ever, those of you in here who are parents or grandparents now, have you ever asked your children a question, not to receive an answer, but to make a statement? Huh? How many of you say, yeah, I've done that. I've asked my child a question. I already knew the answer, but I asked them just, just to prove a point, just to make a statement. Well, that's what Jesus is doing here. Now consider, uh, this, the scripture relates in John chapter 5 and verse 3. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. Now, I'm no census expert, but the definition of multitude is a large, indefinite number, a large gathering of people. So from this, I suppose it is safe to assume that there were more than just two or three people lying by the sides of this pool. In fact, the scripture uses the adjective great to describe this multitude. To try to gain a perspective of how large this multitude might be, I did a great deal of research on this pool and discovered that it was actually two pools side by side. Eric, can you pull that picture up? Is that possible? So here we have a picture of the pools... At Bethesda, um, they were actually they were approximately each pool separately was approximately eighty yards long, and fifty yards wide. Now, to put this in a perspective we might understand today, does anyone know how what what is nearly eighty feet long and and fifty feet wide? Any or eighty yards. I mean, anybody know? A football field. Yes, a football field is a hundred yards long. And fifty yards wide, so each one of these two pools were the size of a football field. You're looking at two football stadiums side by side. There, that this were th- these were the pools at Bethesda that Jesus is speaking about. Now, usually, a great multitude of folks gather around a football field, right? Anywhere from fifty to seventy thousand people. Some of the newer stadiums can hold as many as a hundred thousand people. So, given this information. It is likely that we are talking about thousands, not dozens, but thousands of impotent people lying around these pools waiting to be healed. And this has great significance to you and me today. Because you see, Jesus did not address the multitudes, did he? He didn't, he didn't stand there and say, listen to me, every one of you. Will you be made whole? Did he do that? No, he didn't. As a matter of fact, he went to a certain man, the Bible says. That's why that certain man, I told you, was significant. He went to a certain man. He sought out this one man among the thousands and asked him this question. It is obvious that all of these people are suffering from some sort of infirmity. Yet Jesus focused his attention on this one man. Was it because he was a special man? Maybe he was a, a dignitary or a, a, a ruler. Well, I don't think that he was, because had he been a dignitary or had he been of noble birth, I'm sure he would have had an entourage that would have held everyone else back as he got into the pool. Yet we see uh, the sad testimony in verse 7, as the man states in John 5, 7, the impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool but while i am coming another stepped down before me so in this in this fact that jesus went to this directly went to this one man we see the truth and the beauty of election this man had nothing to offer the lord yet he was chosen from among the thousands and given the gift of healing by the savior and such it is with all of us this morning as you sit here this morning whether you were saved or not All of us are helpless and hopeless this morning, apart from the sovereign grace of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So at the time that I have this morning, I'd like to consider this man and compare him to us. Compare him to ourselves as we sit here. Let's let's look at ourselves in this man's life. Number one on your study sheets is this. He was crippled by his infirmities. He was crippled by his infirmities. You should have your Bible open to John chapter 5. Look at verse 5 again. We read here in, in verse 5, And a certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. Now we don't know if this man was born with this infirmity, therefore he's thirty-eight, or if he developed this infirmity later in life, but what we do know is that he has been in this state for thirty-eight years. Each of us here today, whether we are saved or not, was or is equally crippled by our infirmities. Scripture confirms this to us. In Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, we read, And you, hath he quickened, or made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Therefore, all of us uh, are, have, were crippled by the infirmities in our life. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13, And you, being dead in your sin... And the, uncir- the uncircumcision of your flesh hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Now, while the scripture is not certain as to what this man's infirmity was, it is clear that this infirmity has crippled him, has brought him to the place where he is unable to care for himself. And this is exactly the spiritual state of every man that has ever been born of woman. We have all been crippled by sin. Now, there are some things you need to know about sin today. And whether you're saved or not, these truths pertain concerning sin. So first of all, letter A, let me remind you, sin will deceive you. In Romans chapter 7, verse 11, we read, For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Sin always seems to be less threatening than it truly is. This was true in the Garden of Eden, when Eve sinned. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6, we read, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. We see here that Eve didn't see the tree as a threat. She didn't see the tree or its fruit as something that would cripple her. Something that would destroy her fellowship and her relationship with God. She was deceived. She was lured into a trap. And this is exactly what happens to us. We are attracted by all the glitz and glamour of this world. The activities of the world are portrayed as just innocent fun. The beautiful people in the commercials we see are laughing and frolicking in the sun. They are filled with joy and happiness. Or so it would seem. But sin will deceive you if you are foolish enough to become deceived. But not only will sin deceive you, but secondly, I want to remind you this morning that sin will enslave you. In John chapter 8 and verse 34, we read Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. Yes, sin will enslave us, it draws us into its web. Like a, like a fly in a spider's web. Any of you ever watch a spider take care of a fly in his web? What does the spider do? The spider runs right out there and quickly bites this, the fly and then spins a the web around him and, and just entraps him. It enslaves that fly. And that's what happens to us with sin. We become attracted to it. it it's deceiving. It doesn't look so bad. It looks like it's not really going to hurt us. And it doesn't seem like something God would really be upset about. So we get involved with it, and all of a sudden, wow, we get stung. And then and then we get wrapped up in a cocoon by that sin, and it enslaves us. Sin can be compared to a pool of quicksand. Once you step into it, it pulls you down further and further. At first, it's slow and subtle. In fact, you may not even realize you are in sin. sin. Then when you realize what is happening, it is too late. The more you struggle, the faster you will pull down, and you cannot escape. Now, this is something that all of us in this room have experienced in our lives, including King David in Scripture. In Psalm 73 and verse 2, we read, David writes, But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. He found himself sinking in sin and despair, and the grievous clutches of sin knows no mercy. Sin keeps us from doing that which we know to do. Turn with me in your, in your Bible. You might want to mark John chapter 5, but turn with me to Romans chapter number 7. Romans chapter 7, just a little ways back. And let's go to verse number 14. Romans chapter 7, beginning at verse 14. I said, sin keeps us from doing that which we know to do. Beginning at verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would, that do I not, but what I hate, that do I. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. For the good that I would I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now if I do that I would not, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. That's very, that's very tongue twisting. But it's, it's really easy to say, understand what he's saying, right? The things he should do, he doesn't do. And the things he shouldn't do, those are the things he does. And it's all because of sin and the enslaving power. Sin deceives you. Sin enslaves you. Then thirdly, a letter C, sin will destroy you. In James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15, we read, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin when it is finished, Bringeth forth death. And I find something interesting here. You notice James didn't say, but every man is tempted when the devil comes along. Did you notice that? He didn't say that. What did he say? Every man is tempted when he is drawn away, what? Of his own lust. You know, we go around blaming the devil for a lot of things he has nothing to do with. Now, certainly the spirit of the Antichrist exists today. The spirit of evil permeates this world. But you know, you know who your biggest enemy is? the person you see in the mirror. It's yourself. It's your own flesh. It's your own lust. That's your problem. And if you go around deceiving yourself into thinking that the devil made you do it. No. You made you do it. Learn to, learn to, to, to understand you are your own worst enemy. Um, the ultimate conclusion of sin we see in, these passage, in this passage is Death. But wait one moment here. All men die. So if the only result of sin is death, then it's no big deal, right? Because all, we all have to die. So if we die and everything's okay, then nothing to worry about. However, in Revelation chapter 20, in verse 14, we see, And death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. So we see that sin results in two deaths. The death of the body and the death of the eternal soul. Now, let's look at these just for just a moment. First, we have the physical death. This is the death of the body. Romans 5:12. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And this was, of course, the sin of Adam. And the sinful nature of man is passed from generation to generation through the seed of man. Uh, let's turn together to Genesis chapter 3 real quickly. Genesis chapter 3, and we'll read just a couple of verses here. Genesis chapter 3, and we'll begin at verse number 17. Let's look at this now. And unto Adam he said, because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hath eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, curses the ground for thy sake. And sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns, and also in thistles, shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. Uh, In the sweat of thy face uh, shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. So we see here physical death, and this shall continue until the end of this age. In Hebrews chapter nine, verse 27, the Bible states, "And it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment: all men taste of physical death, for this is a curse of the fall, and death awaits all of us because of sin. But then there is also a spiritual death. In Ezekiel 18:4, we read, "Behold, all souls are mine as the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine, the soul that sinneth." It shall die. Here, here it didn't say that the body is going to turn to dust. Here it said the soul is going to die. So this is a second death. This is a spiritual death. The body dies, a physical death, and goes to the grave. But here we see the souls of sinners await the final judgment for the second death. In Revelation chapter 20 and verse 13, we read, And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man, according to their works. And this judgment is the final stopping point before these lost souls are deposited into their eternal abode, which is the lake of fire. Revelation 20:15). And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Oh yes, my friends, make no mistake today. Romans 6:23 tells us, for the wages of sin is death. The just recompense of our sin is eternal separation and damnation in the lake of fire, which is a second death. Sin deceives you. It enslaves you. And it destroys you. Just as this man in John chapter 5. We have been crippled by our infirmities. But then we're also similar to this man. Because number two. We see that he trusted in traditions. He trusted in traditions. Back again. At John chapter one, uh, chapter 5. If you were smarter than me. You kept your spot so you can go right to it. I'll take just a second to get here. John chapter 5 and at verse number 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jews went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, a blind halt, weather, waiting for the moving of the water. Verse 4. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water whosoever then first went in after the troubling of the waters, stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had he trusted in traditions. do you know the, the scripture gives no credit to this claim do you realize that Jesus didn't confirm this he didn't, he didn't credit that this truly happened what was that what was it it was a myth it was a wives tale there was, there's nothing to, to give us evidence of that. This man trusted in traditions. He was so desperate. He was so desperate that he resorted to folklore for help. The tradition was that at a certain time, an angel would descend into the pool and deliver healing to the first person to enter the pool. And whether this was fact or legend is unconfirmed by the Lord. His purpose here was not to validate this legend. Uh, In fact, his purpose was to redeem this elect child of God, to show forth the glory and to show forth the grace of God and salvation. Jesus, I believe, was here to show that tradition does not save. He was here to show that the traditions of men cannot be compared with the glory of the Father. In Colossians chapter 2, we read, Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And such is the state of so many people today. They are locked in traditions above the truth of the gospel. I hear it all the time. People say, well, I'm a Baptist, or I'm a Catholic, or I'm a Methodist, or... I'm an Episcopalian or something else. And all of this is steeped in tradition. My own father once told me if I was to believe... He told me, he says, if I was to believe what you say about salvation, then I would have to admit that my own parents are in hell. You see, he would rather die in error than deny the traditions handed down to him by his parents. This impotent man... Has turned to the only religion he has known. And such is the state of men today. They turn to the only thing they know. The traditions of men. The traditions of religion. But what is religion? Anybody have any idea? What is religion? Anybody know? Does the scripture tell us what religion is? It most certainly does. In James chapter 1 and verse 27 we read. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction, and to keep himself unspotted from the world. According to the Bible, religion is, is works of kindness and works of goodness and works of charity. But we all know that works cannot get us to heaven, right? For by grace are you saved through faith and not, not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works. But religion is works. Religion cannot make one whole. It cannot lead to salvation. Salvation does not come by religion. This man was so locked in, into tradition that he did not even know where his hope for healing truly lay. He was crippled in his infirmities. He trusted in traditions. But then, thirdly, this morning, let me say this He invested his hope in that which could not help. He invested his hope. His hope for, for being whole was invested in a, in a, in a, in a tradition, in, in, a, in folklore, in a myth. We read it already in verse, John chapter 5 and verse 7. This, the impotent man answered, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. This man invested his hope for healing in the chance. That he would get into the water before anyone else. This screams to me of the plight of so many today. As I, as I witness to people, as I work with people, as I, as I uh, deal with people on almost a daily basis, I hear these things. I'm a pretty good person. Some people say, well, I pay all my bills and I don't hurt anybody, so I, I must be pretty good. So I think I'm going to heaven. Others will say, well, I think I'm okay just like I am. Or they'll say, well, my mother and father or my grandfather was a preacher or my mom and dad are good Christians, so I think I'm okay. Yet the truth of the matter is that there is only one way to heaven. John chapter 14 and verse 6. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. I'm sorry, Oprah Winfrey. I'm sorry. Unless you're smarter than Jesus... There isn't many paths to heaven. Can anyone anyone deny this verse? Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No man cometh to the Father but by me. This morning there may be some of you here that are not born again. You might be a member of this church. You might come to every service. You might tithe. You might do all these things, but you're not saved. You're not born again. Because like this, like this impotent man, you've got your faith in the wrong things. You've you got your trust in the fact that you're a member of Berean Baptist Church. That, that, being, that doing that is going, to, is going to redeem you to Christ. You might, you might be here this morning and you might, you might say, well, you know, I, I, I sacrifice. I do all these works. I do all these things. The Bible talks about those coming to Jesus saying, uh, Master, have we not prophesied in in thy name and in thy name done many wonderful works? And Jesus said, depart from me, ye cursed into everlasting fire, for I never knew you. There may be some here this morning, you're not truly born again. You do not know the Lord as your Savior. You're just like this man. You've been crippled by your infirmities. Romans 3.23 tells us, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You are trusting in traditions. Romans chapter 10 tells us, For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves under the righteousness of God. Are Are you investing your hope in that which cannot save? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10 verses 9 and 10 that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So since you are like this man in every other way will you be like this impotent man? Will you be made whole today? Well, in John chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, we see Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, and took up his bed, and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. That man lay there, he was crippled from his infirmities, he was trusting in traditions. And he was lying there, and he was going to invest his hope for for, for healing and, 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 and a myth and something that could not work, Jesus came along and said, Really? Is that what you're going to do? Jesus said, Stand up, take your bed, and go. That man learned something right there. What did he learn? That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. This morning, as you sit here, do you hear the voice of God calling to you? Will you be saved today? Romans chapter 10 and verse 8. But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. Romans chapter 10 and verse 13. Jesus says, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I don't care who you are sitting in this room this morning. I I can promise you. I can guarantee you the scripture doesn't lie. Someone in this room is not saved. You may, you may be, you may even be convinced the devil, uh, the, the spirit of the Antichrist may even have you convinced, your own flesh may have you convinced in your mind that you're, you're, you're a Christian, but in your heart you know that you're not. In, in, your, in your heart you do not hear the voice of Christ calling unto you. You're not saved. But you can be saved. The Bible tells us, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. Shall be saved. Be saved today. You Say, "Well, I'd be embarrassed. Uh, people would people would know that I've been a phony all these years." Better, let me tell you something. Better to be known as a phony and in heaven than discovered as a phony when you're being cast into hell. Be saved today. Maybe you're a teenager here today, and you've you've never really really confessed Christ. You've never really come to Him and and truly been saved today. Take care of that. Don't walk out of this building. Your life is a vapor that appeareth for a little time that vanisheth away. Today is the day of salvation. But then there are others here this morning that are saved. But you've fallen away from the Lord. You've left your first love. Revelations chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, we read, Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember therefore from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and re- will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. Maybe you're here this morning, and you are truly saved, but you've fallen back. You've fallen back under the power of your infirmities. Those, you've fallen back under the power of sin, and you've fallen back under the, under the clutches of sin. You've been deceived again. You've been enslaved again, and you're going to be destroyed. You've forgotten truth. Maybe you're like this man, you've forgotten truth, and you're following the traditions of men. Coming to church has, for you has just become a thing to do. It's not, it's not because you desire to be here. It's not because you desire to worship the Lord. It's not because you have a, an abiding love. It's just simply because this is what you should do. It's becoming a routine thing to you. It's it's becoming tradition. There's nothing routine about church. Amen? I was thinking this morning. This Sunday is my 1,668th Sunday morning as a believer. 1,668 Sundays. I've been a child of God. And I want to tell you something. I'm excited about every one of them. I look so, I so look forward to Sunday when, when we can come together, when we can, when we can worship God, when we can, when we can offer Him our praise and, and offer Him our, our sacrifices and our services in order to glorify and honor Him. Not for what I can get out of it, but for what we can give to Him. What does Sunday become to you? I, I know in some cases it isn't much because it won't, it doesn't take hardly anything at all to keep you home on Sunday. And I'm sorry for upsetting you, but I'm not sorry for upsetting you. You've forgotten about truth. Church has just become routine. It's a tradition to you. It doesn't mean anything. You can take it or leave it. You don't care. It, it, it won't it won't affect you. It won't it won't hurt you one bit to not come to church. You, and you'll make some lame excuse. Oh, well, you know, this happened or that happened. Or just get here. You ought to love to be here. You've forgotten truth in following the tradition of men. Like this man, you've traded the Christian walk for the allurements of the world. And as such, you've invested your hope, you've invested your life into those things that are not of God. What do we, what do we invest in our life in? What are we putting all of our energy and effort into today? That defines you as a believer, by the way. That tells us. That really exposes you for what you truly are in your heart. Because the Bible says, for where a man's heart is, or for where a man's treasure is, there will his heart be also. What what do you treasure today? Do you treasure your relationship with the Father? Do you you treasure his will for your life? Do you you value the presence of God and and, and the peace of God in your life? If you do, that's where your heart's going to be. That's where your heart's going to be. And by the way, I don't want anyone to misunderstand. I'm not standing here right now claiming to be all of this. You see, before I preach any message to you... I preach it to myself. And these are the things that God has exposed to my heart. And has made me aware of. And and wants me to share it with you. I have to be careful too. I have to to keep my mind and my heart focused on, on Christ. The most important thing in my life. Jesus Christ. Everything has to start there. So to you this morning that are Christian, but you've kind of fallen away, I say, come home. Come home. Remember the prodigal son. He came to his senses. He woke up and he said, I don't have to. I don't have to live like this. I, I can be a servant to my father and live better than this. And that's what he did. But what he found when he got there was his father wasn't going to make him a servant. He was going to make him a child. What about you this morning? He, just like the, the, the story in the prodigal son, he is watching and waiting for you. Let us pray. Father, we stand before you now in humility. And Father, we are so far from what we should be. We like to, we like to think that we're pretty good. We like to feel like we're better than some others. The truth of the matter is, we're all just like this impotent man. We're crippled by the sin in our lives. Whether we be saved or not, we're crippled by the sin in our lives. And we're trusting in traditions. Lord, our life has become routine. The the, the things of, of God are no longer important to us. They're just things we do. And Lord, we're investing our life in things that will burn up, things that will go away. Help us, Father. If there's any here this morning who are not saved, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would enlighten them and awaken them and that you would cause them to come to Christ. And for those that are saved in this room, I pray you'd awaken us as well. I pray you'd open our eyes and cause us to see how far we have drifted from you and cause us to come running home to the Father. Thank you for this time. I pray you bless this this message and bless this day. Give us your grace and mercy as we go our way. And we'll praise you and we'll thank you and give you all the glory. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. dot dot org.